Hello, this is Tom Hedleston, and you're listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Okay, I thought the world of you. I thought we were going to fight side by side forever, but at the end of the day, you're you and I'm me. I know maybe they're still good in you, but let's be honest, our paths diverged a long time ago. So Loki tried to destroy the Earth, and I did a top five movie, Manimals, with Michael Phillips. Those two things are apparently the same. Some things you just can't forgive, Josh. I'm sorry. That's Chris Hemsworth as the God of Thunder with Tom Hiddleston's Loki in Thor Ragnarok. This week, our review of the new Thor and another dubious Josh-approved top five superhero costumes. It's going to be fun. Can't wait. I think maybe I'd rather battle the Hulk in Ragnarok. Sorry. I, I think it's just Hulk. Let's not get people oh, angry oh, right the off the top here. Hulk. <laughs> we'll have all that plus Massacre Theater and more. Adam Smash. Ahead on Film Spotting. It says here in my notes, Josh, that we're going to promise to bring the same rigor and sophistication to this week's top five superhero costumes that we try to bring to more conventional top fives. But I don't know that I can actually make that vow. No. You? Oh, I, if I logged my hours on top fives, which I should really do. Well, I'm you're not sure getting paid this, by the I'm hour. I'm sure this would be the most time put into a top five. <laughs> well, Actually, you can carry us. Actually, I've been working on this for years, and I just have my back pocket okay. waiting for the chance. Well, I like my this picks. This is it. So this actually should be a pretty fun top five. And if we don't bring quite enough sophistication, we've got a few great guest voicemails to help compensate. That's later in the show. But first, fair to say there was one main reason we were both actually excited for a third Thor movie, Thor Ragnarok, and that was its unlikely director, Taika Waititi. Time to find out if that gamble on Marvel's part paid off. So much has happened since I last saw you. I lost my hammer, like yesterday, so that's still pretty fresh. And then I went on a journey of self-discovery. Where I met you. Where are we? You have no idea. Hello, the goddess of death has invaded Asgard. Oh, I've missed this. And you and I had a fight recently. Did I win? No, I won easily. Doesn't sound right. Well, that's true. So behind the scenes here, Josh, Sam, our esteemed producer, brought up the idea of possibly putting off Thor Ragnarok for one week. We didn't have to review it opening weekend. There's so many other big movies out, or maybe not big movies, but big movies to us, indie movies that we're curious about, Wonderstruck, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and a few others. But the fact is, we've been talking about Thor Ragnarok for, I think, 
two years. I don't remember when exactly it was announced that Taika Waititi would be directing this installment, the latest in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But around the time we were talking about his last film, Hunt for the Wilder People, in 2016, it was part of that conversation. And then we were going back to 2015 with What We Do in the Shadows, his vampire mockumentary that we loved and was, in fact, a golden brick contender. So Waititi's been on our minds for two years now, and we have been excited, actually genuinely excited about this film, even though I didn't even bother to see the second Thor movie, simply because I couldn't wait to see what he would do with the material. Based on those previous two films, I thought certainly it would be a little quirkier, I suppose, and definitely funnier, but we really had no idea to what extent. In fact, the more I think about it now that I've just walked out of Thor Ragnarok in 3D, no less, and we'll talk about that a little bit, I realized that I had never really thought through what my expectations were. What were your expectations for Thor Ragnarok? What did you really think he might do with the material? And for better or worse, did the movie live up to those expectations? It wasn't so clear-cut for me. Maybe those who didn't find the other Thor films to be quite funny would have said, oh, he's going to make these funny. As a matter of fact, from the very first Thor film, I think humor has been central to its success for me. Hemsworth— That was one of the things I wanted to ask you Yeah, Hemsworth, right at the beginning, showed that he had great comic timing. I mean, he not only had the look, but he had— the sort of sensibility that would allow some deflating of maybe not the character so much, but the genre conventions, just your expectations from a scene. I think he was the funniest thing in the Ghostbusters reboot. Sure. Absolutely. Sure. But let me ask you here. Do you think you might be putting that back on Hemsworth to an extent because we've seen him flex those comedic muscles and maybe you think those movies were funnier than they were? I can't comment because, again, I haven't seen The Dark World and I don't remember the first Thor at all. It's not even the Thor movies. I think he's very funny in the Avengers films, too. I mean, if you were to look at the scenes that are played for laughs, most of those involve him. You know, Captain America is a little more straight-faced of a character. And Bruce Banner, which we'll talk about, is Mm -hmm. more of a straight-faced character here, he gets to be pretty funny, I sure. think. And Hemsworth, playing off Hemsworth is a lot to do with I always with feel that. like he's so, kind of the butt of the joke, though, in the Avengers film. Well, he absolutely was in Ghostbusters and played that really well. But I think humor has been a through line for each of these films. So the question for me is, is Waititi going to just sustain that? His humor is a little bit different. Uh, you said quirky. I, I would agree. Goofball is what I think of. Yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of his sense of humor, just unexpected stuff. And I think what he does is certainly amp up the humor. So this is the funniest Thor movie. But for me, that's saying something. It's not like it took this dreary, self-serious enterprise, which some Marvel films have been, and is suddenly going to turn it inside out or subvert it into something different. It's really amplifying what's always been there. And we can talk about how maybe that does push against some of the more serious conventional elements that have also always been a part of these films. Palace intrigue. I mean, there was a lot of Shakespearean echoes to the first Thor, which I appreciated. And some of that here, I think, runs up a little bit against the Mm -hmm. humor going on in another section of the film. So maybe that's something we can get to. But to answer your question, I I basically knew the humor was going to come. I didn't quite know how it would fit with the previous humor. I think he manages both. I think he honors the character that Hemsworth established at the beginning, lets him be funny in the way he's always been funny. And then, especially in this middle section where we get to this planet called Sakaar, 
he just goes nuts with the sort of stuff that he wants to do. Mm-hmm. And they both come together really well for me. Yeah, in fact, the whole movie feels kind of like an excuse just to have that 45 minutes on Sakaar. I agree. Honestly, and that is the most enjoyable part of the movie, so I suppose I'm okay with that. I really am kind of stunned walking out of it. And first, I do want to say, I think I've been pretty good over 12 years of this show, if you look back at never trying to provide disclaimers before we talk about a movie. I feel really bad about doing that, but... I do have a few disadvantages here. I did just come from the movie, as I said. You've had a little bit more time to process Thor Ragnarok. You, you lucky, lucky person, saw it in 2D. <laughs> and I saw it in 3D IMAX. And on top of it, I have a head cold. It's just coming down. And I sat there watching it in 3D, Josh, with those glasses on. And I'm already a little dizzy. My equilibrium's a little bit off. And every time I turn my head, the screen gets fuzzy. Wearing the glasses, honestly, there's there's like a blur every time you're looking at a character on the side of the screen. And because of where I'm sitting at the IMAX theater, I'm at eye level with the bottom of the screen. So Ooh, bad. it seems as if there are certain scenes where characters are they're acting on a table. It looks like they're sitting or standing on a stage as opposed to being on a movie screen. It was a really odd experience, and I had a hard time just kind of getting myself settled watching this film. But I knew it would be funny because it's Waititi, but funny is the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, too. They have jokes in them. They have humorous moments. They have humorous characters. This movie is... Goofball is about the best word, about the most academic word I can think of, too, to associate with this film. It's zany. It's completely absurd. And I suppose I really do respect that about the film, that I thought he would inject that element to it. I didn't know to this degree. It's almost like Thor meets Abbott and Costello. Yeah. It has that kind of feel to it. Even more than that, it has the feel, and you wouldn't know this because you've still never seen it, but I loved it when I was a kid, and from watching this movie, I'm certain Taika Waititi did as well. He must have watched Flash Gordon 157 times because this feels like Flash Gordon. It doesn't have maybe the same element of camp to it, but it does have that absurdity. It has the day glow colors bright in every frame. The music from Mark Mothersbaugh here, heavy on the synth, just like the Flash Gordon score. So I felt like I was being transported back to being a kid and watching that film. So I give him a lot of credit, I suppose, for taking this film and pushing it as far as he did. In fact, there is one line in the film that struck me as maybe Waititi's mantra as he was making this film. And I don't even remember at this point. I just came from it. Who says it or what the scenario is? But a character says, the only thing that makes sense is that nothing makes sense. And that's about the best way, I think, to sum up most of what happens in this film. So I'm so glad you mentioned Abbott and Costello. In my written review, I actually referenced their Who's on First Oh, really? Yeah, because that sequence after Hulk and Thor face off in this gladiatorial Mm -hmm. arena where Jeff Goldblum presides over in blue eyeliner and lipstick on this planet. He's so funny. So they have this fight. And then later on, they get into this debate over who won. And they go back and forth. And the timing is so great. It it reminded me of who's on yeah. first. Now, yeah. You know, it's not that intricate and complicated, but it is in that tradition, right? And so to think that Waititi is going to reference something like that and invoke that sort of comic tradition in here is really pushing the bounds of comedy. I'll give you another word. Slap happy. 
That's what came to mind. It's yeah. as if this movie was made by people who there are so many interplanetary elements and it's psychedelic too. It's almost like a Star Wars spinoff made by people who have stayed up all night binging yeah. Teletubbies. Yeah. And this is kind of what <laughs> came out of that. Well, there's even a parody aspect to it, almost. A little bit. You know, it bit. almost seems like, I was going to say, if there was an outtake at the end of this film, and there is, or one of those Marvel moments, but it's not funny in this case, but if there was, there isn't any need for it. The whole movie is comprised yes. of those moments. That middle section feels like that. Uh, and I agree. There's a lot to the design of this planet. The colors here, you mentioned how it's basically a garbage dump this planet Mm -hmm. but there are these buildings that pop up here and there that are very bright goldblum is so committed his costumes there i mean i've seen the flash gordon images and that speaks it's it's almost like we're going to talk about costumes later but thor gets a really substantial costume Mm -hmm. right goldblum's is like he threw some glitter on an old bathrobe purposefully (laughs) you know and man does he lean into the Mm -hmm. he's snapping at one point he's tapping his toes like this this isn't a guy cashing a paycheck he's having fun in any case you know this uh this uh you call yourself lord of thunder god of thunder (laughs) i've never met this man in my life he's my brother adopted is he any kind of a fighter? <laughs> you take this thing out of my neck and I'll show you. Oh, listen to that. He's threatening me. Hey, Sparkles, here's the deal. If you want to get back to Ass uh, Place, Asperg. As God! Any contender who defeats my champion, their freedom they shall win. Fine, then point me in the direction of whoever's ass I have to kick. That's what I call contender. Direction would be, would be this way, Lord. And we get to have fun along with him. So I did that for a really good portion Mm -hmm. of this film. Yeah, and there is a good marriage here of director and material, I think just in the sense that if you were ever going to have a director come in and say, I'm going to amp up the insanity and the zaniness, you would do it with the one where the hero's a Viking from another planet called Asgard. (laughs) And there's all the talk of the Bifrost and all these just bizarre sort of mythological things and the fact that they all speak English and it just doesn't really make any sense at all. And Waititi seems to know that and he embraces it. And I think that's kind of thing that that people are going to really respond to or people are going to say, what are you doing to my beloved mythology? And every moment, and I appreciate these moments, he's constantly trying to break those down or subvert them a little bit with humor, where just a little bit like one moment where he's being the big hero or he thinks he's being the big hero, Thor. He's talking to Tessa Thompson, who is really good here in this film. I think all the supporting players are really good here. And he gets a ball, looks almost like a bowling ball, and he goes to throw it out the window and it comes back and hits him right in the head. And (laughs) that's not what you would expect from, you said there was humor, and I believe you with the previous two Thor movies, but nothing quite like that where Thor is made to look other than Tony Stark maybe taking some jabs at him and having some fun at his expense for being this Viking from another planet, there aren't moments like that where he's made to look that foolish. And this movie is built on those moments. Yeah, I do think that whatever humor was in the previous films will help smooth out the transition to this one, even for hardcore Thor fans. At least that's my hope. I think what Waititi does, and that was a good example of it, with the the ball that bounces back at him, he undercuts the scene so often here and some of that he also voices a character Mm -hmm. one of these gladiators kind of a alien rock monster but he gives him this polite demeanor i really wish i had my hammer hammer quite unique it was made from this this special metal from the heart of a dying star and when i spun it really really fast it gave me the ability to fly you wrote a hammer 
No, I, I didn't ride the Hummer. The Hummer rode you on your back? No, no, no. I, I used to spin it really fast, and it, it would it would pull me off the... Oh, my God. The Hummer pulled you off? The ground. It would pull me off the ground, up into the air, and I would fly. Every time I threw it, it would always come back to me. Sounds like you had a pretty special and intimate relationship with this Hammer, and that losing it was almost comparable to losing a loved one. It's a nice way of putting it. And that is why TT, we should say, yeah, doing that's the voice. Yeah, why TT doing the yeah. voiceover. And the great opening where Thor is imprisoned by this fire demon, very dramatic, and he's hanging from a chain before this fire demon, and all wrapped up in the chain, and just awkwardly, unintentionally starts mm-hmm. spinning around as he's getting lectured. Funny, yeah. It's, but it's funny because it's deflating the drama. It's like, the moment we've seen in a million of these films. It's the moment yes. that we're supposed to be, oh, what's going to happen? Yeah. And he plays it as a comedy of manners. Mm-hmm. These two have a dialogue. Now, it does get to a big, violent confrontation. He includes these things, too. And we can talk about maybe how the fight scenes don't work. Yes, I we was can. a little disappointed by the reliance on a lot of dreary, bleary CGI mm-hmm. for some of this. Uh, I would have been happy with just the comedy of manners. I didn't need the fire demon battle with all that blurriness afterwards. Yeah, I think that is where the movie definitely let me down. And we go back to my initial question to you about Waititi and exactly the direction he would take it. I have contradictory thoughts and that I absolutely feel like, as I said, he pushed it further in terms of the humor than I ever really imagined he would. And yet there's a part of me that wishes he had found a way to truly take the Marvel formula and turn it completely on its head and make a different kind of Thor, a different kind of superhero movie that isn't just as wacky as this one is. And what I mean is in terms of the basic storytelling elements, who the heroes are, who the villains are, what the villains are after, what the heroes are after, the familial elements and all of that that we have seen play out in at least the first movie and some of these other Marvel films, there aren't really any surprises at all with the story whatsoever. And there is also this element, Josh, I'll say with the humor, as much as I do respond to a lot of it, I did find myself having trouble kind of getting my footing with how flimsy then that makes everything. This is supposed to be about life and death, the end of the world, the end of his world on Asgard and what he's fighting for and what that all means. And from that opening scene, you do get the sense that, okay, this is just going to be wacky fun time. Well, that's the danger, right? Yeah, that is the danger. And so you know that really it doesn't matter how many times Hulk steps on Thor. This is also the danger with all these superhero movies. And I really like Civil War, as did you, but we can go back and dissect that scene at the airplane hangar and it works way better than it ever should have but there are times where they just have superheroes really not appearing on camera doing anything of consequence because if these superheroes really battled each other it would be something completely different than what we see they have these powers it sometimes then makes it a case where you don't understand what the rules are supposed to be or really how fallible they are and it just then makes the whole thing feel like it doesn't really carry as much weight as maybe it should. At the same time, this is where I'm being contradictory. I did just come from the film. It's a movie about people from Asgard. So how serious do you want to take it? Well, there should be a sense of weight. And here's a way to counter that, that other Marvel movies have done it well, is make these stakes personal, right? Less world-endangering and more interpersonal. I Mm -hmm. think one thing we liked about Captain America Civil War is how it eventually brought it down to Stark and Captain America and that conflict between them. So the thing about Thor Ragnarok is 
it has an opportunity to do that, but I don't know if it's able to do it while it's also spending half of its time on this other planet with Jeff Goldblum, right? Right. And so what I'm talking about here is the whole other narrative thread involving the villain, the main threat to Asgard, Kate Blanchett's Hela, the goddess of death, who we learn is also Thor's older sister, who he didn't know he had. And she is delicious as Hela. She's She's wonderful. Yeah. Amazing. And she's making a claim on the throne. Again, mm-hmm. as you said, this is one of the things I liked about the first Thor, how it was this familial intrigue in the palace. And so we have some elements that could work here, but it almost maybe should have been a fourth Thor movie mm. and, and given a chance to really breathe on its own. And and maybe you're right. The Waititi movie could have been just the complete wackadoo you know, almost right. a spinoff. And we just do that for fun, set it aside. And then Hela could then be the next narrative. Mm-hmm. Because I do think as good as Blanchette is, and man, talking about costumes again, that helmet, which is like, yeah. it seems like it's more when made. she's ready to attack. Oh, and, I love how yeah. she, she pulls her hair back with right. her hands to make the helmet appear. Yes. And then it's like made from the racks of like a herd of demon deer or something. It's really <laughs> amazing. Yeah, almost antlers. Antlers, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's a great touch. Her performance, she taps into that sinister vibe mm-hmm. she had in Cinderella, especially. Very theatrical, um, but that's what you want here. Yeah. And it works. But the problem is the story she's stuck in, because there's not enough time given to it, is very conventional. Yes. She just wants to destroy Asgard, yeah. I guess, but also take over the throne. And her threat is too big. Mm. It should be personal against her brother. But instead, it becomes this that there's another giant monster climax that yeah. we're not that invested yeah, in. Yeah, that's it. And the finale, I think, here, and we seem to say this about so many Marvel movies, unfortunately, just really is not fun at all from where I was sitting. And just from a construction standpoint, the editing of these action scenes, really unsatisfying. The blocking simply of where people are, <laughs> the basics of this battle really are not there for me as a viewer to have any investment. And there's part of me that thought it's so bad. Maybe this is part of YTT's commentary. Maybe this is more subversion on his part, but it doesn't feel like that. There isn't enough going on for him to really pull the rug out there during these climactic battle sequences. They're still supposed to be kind of viscerally entertaining and they are on some level, but honestly, just because of the way they're shot, it really seemed to me almost as if we mentioned that, YTT seemed to be so invested in the whole Sakaar section of the film. By the time we get to the end where he's got to deliver the goods, the Marvel goods, it feels like his heart isn't in it. Mm -hmm. And there aren't enough jokes. There isn't enough humor there. It's just sloppy. And sloppy isn't what we got leading up to that point. Yeah, I think you can tell the personal touch is lessened there at the climax. Absolutely. Mostly that is the case for a lot of the action. I've already mentioned the disappointing CGI. I do want to point out a couple of instances where he does something well that's not just humor oriented. I do think there are two action scenes that go into a slow motion tableau. One of them is a flashback to a battle with Hela and the Valkyries. Mm-hmm. That's actually quite beautiful. I agree. And, and the key there is it's it's painterly because there is movement, but things have been slowed down and we can linger mm-hmm. over the images and they're crisper. Uh, and there's a second tableau I'm forgetting uh, that's done in the same manner. Well, I'm is that the one exactly when she shows what the artwork is. That's what I was yeah, going that's to. That's it. Where it's, yeah, it that's, feels like something out of a out of a comic book and where you yes, feel like a panel is coming to life in front of you. And it's unique. Yeah. Right. The the cinematic yeah. way of doing it I is agree. unique. It's basically this mural of 
Asgard's history. Mm -hmm. And we see it twice. What I like also how it ties in with Hela is she destroys it and reveals that there's the real history of Asgard, how Mm -hmm. the planet was built Mm -hmm. and the others who had to die for that to happen, the ugly side of Asgard's history, basically. And I do like how this character works as, you know, she's kind of pointing out this hypocritical patriarchy that in a way, especially with all of these stories coming out of Hollywood and mm-hmm. women rallying around each other, at least at this particular time, you can almost see Hela as a character you want to get behind as coming in to take over what's been a hypocritical, corrupt sure. industry. And part of me enjoyed some of her scenes through that lens a little bit. Again, she's not given quite no. enough for anything like that to to get rooted yeah. In a way, we can become invested in. Yeah. But it, but it's a it's a little hint that that made me enjoy her character a little more. No, I think actually what you're describing, you're right. That element is there, but it actually just makes me regret it wasn't developed just a little bit more. Because instead, Blanchett's having so much fun with the evilness of her character that there really isn't that moment where you truly have any sympathy for her or really feel like she's been wrong, yeah. even as it does tie back into the history of it and you understand that she was used. She gets you have one, to see that. Yeah, you, she but, gets one line too, and I forget exactly when it is, but after she's slaughtered some people, she says something like, I, I really thought they'd welcome me back. And because it's Blanchette and she's yeah. so good, like she layers some real feeling into that. But, other, but other than that, you don't get a lot. No. Well, Thor, Josh, do you want to give us the correct... Scandinavian pronunciation. We learned it last week. No, I, I think we heard it in the movie. It's Ragnarok now. We heard it, right? <laughs> That's you, not as fun, though. You want to go with the Dane? I believe it was Danish, I mean, right? just for fun, just for old time's sake. Didn't just we have one a Dane last time. Tell us this. I thought he was Norwegian. No, he was Danish. I You're right. You're the Norwegian Danish. one. I'm the Norwegian. Come on. I, keep I it apologize, Andreas. I know that you are Danish, but Thor Ragnarok. Ragnarok. <laughs> no, that just sounded just like I syllable. coughed. Are you playing the rock guy? Ragnarok. Is that what Andreas oh, told us? He's going to stop listening. <laughs> he just unsubscribed from the podcast. Thor Ragnarok is out in wide release this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. All right, we'll improve on our pronunciation when we play Massacre Theater next. Then I'll try to convince Adam to get in touch with his inner underoos-wearing child for this week's top five superhero costumes. I brought him with me. Stay with us. Why run away? This. It's from my dad. It's where I found the bookmark. Why did my father have this book? A clip there from the trailer for Wonderstruck, the new one from director Todd Haynes. It's got Haynes' regular Julianne Moore in dual roles in this one. Josh, now I'm going to just put you on the spot. Todd Haynes, you're ranking his films. You got a favorite one? You have an obvious number one? Oh, man. No, no. And that's only because they're all so good. 
I think, you know, Carol is freshest in my mind, mm-hmm. so that's at the top. But I'm not there. Completely different. Almost experimental. Yep. And then something like Far From Heaven I love too, but you're looking at a, a recreation of a Cirque film. Mm-hmm. I mean, the range of his – and look at this now with Wonderstruck, something you wouldn't expect at all that he would make. Yeah, apparently a children's book of sorts. Yeah. I, last week I struggled over how to describe it, and that's because it is aimed at young readers, but it's not exactly a graphic novel. Basically, it has long passages of prose intercut with – maybe 10 to 12 pages of hand-drawn illustrations. Okay. So it's really unique stuff. The invention of Hugo Cabret I read and loved, and Scorsese obviously made the adaptation of that. And I'm almost done with Wonderstruck. like it a little bit less, but it's still that combination of word and image. Mm-hmm. This I can understand why Haynes would want to make it because it's just got to be so enticing for a filmmaker to try to recreate in some way that dynamic on the screen. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Hugo, the connection there. Brian Selznick, the author of Hugo Cabaret, also the author of the graphic novel Wonderstruck. It opens in limited release this weekend and then goes wide on the 10th. Next week, we do plan to review Wonderstruck and share some thoughts on at least one other film. We might have a top five as well, a little bit in flux, but Agnes Varda, her latest Faces Places, and of course, we're huge Varda fans after our recent Varda Marathon, and Yorgos Lanthimos, his new one, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, also in theaters, so a couple decisions to make there. If you want to sway us one way or another, you can email us at any time, feedback at filmspotting.net, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting. Our current filmspotting poll is a deathmatch. We're pitting a pair of all-star ensembles from a couple upcoming releases against each other. The cast of Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri on one side versus the cast of Kenneth Branagh's adaptation of the Agatha Christie yarn, Murder on the Orient Express. Only members of one ensemble will go on to act another day. It is a death match after all. Both films open next week, Three Billboards and Limited release and Orient Express. Why, Josh, do you want to lay out for listeners just what we're dealing with here with these all-star ensembles. So here's who you have to choose between the group that includes Francis McDormand, Sam Rockwell, Woody Harrelson, John Hawks, Peter Dinklage, and Lucas Hedges. Yes, please. We added Lucas Hedges. Was he? In? Sure. Did we mention him? Before? I don't think okay. he was mentioned last time, well, but coming off Manchester by the Sea, an Oscar nomination. Yeah. He might as well be there on the list. And then Orient Express, we've got Branna himself and, I mean, Dame Judi Dench. Probably the all-star there, but some other really good names. The others are Derek Jacoby, Penelope Cruz, Michelle Pfeiffer, Willem Dafoe, and newcomers Daisy Ridley and Leslie Odom Jr. So I predicted this might be an early knockout, and it is looking that way, but we encourage you to vote. Try to sway this, or at least try to make it a little closer deathmatch. Filmspotting.net, you'll find the poll question right there on the main page. And a quick clarification as there was, apparently, Josh, a little bit of confusion in the poll feedback. I mean, of course there was. We can't do this properly the first time, can we? The winner of this poll, they won't be the only surviving actors on the planet. It's not as if Francis McDormand and Sam Rockwell and John Hawks are going to be in every film for all time. But the losers, we're never going to see another Judy Dench performance, Derek Jacoby, Penelope Cruz. They're gone. We're not going to see him ever again. That's what's at stake in this poll question. Again, filmspotting.net is where you can vote. Merchandise, we do want to mention our t-shirts, once again, plus Josh's book, it's there. You can find the links right there at filmspotting.net slash shop. And we already 
have started to get some feedback, some suggestions. Josh Jordan Wilkins said, I'd love to see a film spotting madness themed T-shirt. What do you think a film spotting madness themed T-shirt would look like? Are we talking are we talking a bracket? Oh, yeah. Here, the brackets maybe? on there. OK. The finished bracket. The finished bracket. Fastbender's head right in the middle sure. from it's our actor's trof- madness. A trophy. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Or he says, and I really like this one. You couldn't go wrong with a tyranny of Josh lettered shirt either. <laughs> Love the show. Down with the tyranny of Josh. Yeah. Well, I, I'm assuming I would get higher royalties for that shirt. Yes. So You'd I'm get a larger cut. <laughs> hey, I, I know these are selling. My brother-in-law just texted me a photo sporting his. He went with the what blue. Color? The, what are we calling that blue? Is it like a... There's a royal. Royal blue? Yeah. yeah, there's more of a royal blue, I think they call it. And then there's kind of the more traditional blue that if you've been to our website in the past or you go and see some of the links on our new site, that's our standard blue film spotting t-shirt, more of a navy. Yeah, the royal blue looked good on him. I don't, yeah, I think I don't know sharp. why he didn't buy a copy of the book instead. I'm kind of <laughs> heard about that. But. Ouch. I don't really know Whatever. what to say about that, Josh. I'm... Sorry for you. Our website is also where you can find all the details on how to enter to win free movie passes. And we do have some of the same films we talked about on our last show available now. The screenings are coming up here in the next week or so. Last Flag Flying, Richard Linklater's latest Wonder, directed by Stephen Chbosky, Julia Roberts, and Owen Wilson are in that one. And The Square, the latest from Ruben Oslin, the director of Force Majeure, starring Elizabeth Moss, is also coming out. So if you want the chance to see those movies, not only for free, Josh, but in advance of their release, you can make all of your friends jealous or you can spoil them for your enemies, I suppose. Filmspotting.net slash events is where you can find that information. One last little bit of website-related content here, Josh. We got this email from Dennis Hui. While I appreciate your efforts to redesign and improve the website, I've been having more trouble recently finding old content on the new site. The search function is particularly worse than it used to be. For example, I recently saw Maps to the Stars, which I recalled in my mind that you reviewed on the show when it came out, and I wanted to revisit that episode. Simply typing the movie title into the search bar yielded no results, as you can test out yourself. I had to search the title on the forum to find the thread related to the episode of the review. If I didn't already know a review existed, I would have simply thought the movie was never discussed on your show. So I'm really glad Dennis wrote in because it did remind me that I just kind of assumed that people on our new website would be able to find the links to the archive website. And really, that was overly presumptuous on my part, Josh, because they're not in very many obvious places. But the reality is with the new site, it's going to take us years It may actually never fully happen where we transfer everything from 12 years and 650 episodes over to the new site between all the top five lists, the episode content, the marathons, you name it. But it's something we are gradually working on. What that means is the search function on the new website actually works really well. It's just not going to search the old website. It's only going to search the new. So all this is a way of saying that if you do go to our new website and you're looking for that old content – If you click on episodes now or you click on lists, you should find fairly prominently links to take you back to the old website where you can still search and find all of that content. Also, not a bad idea just to go to Google and type in Maps to the Stars film spotting and it will take you to that old website. So the old site's still up and functioning. 
search is still working. That content is all still there. And over time, hopefully we will get it transferred over. We did have one other note we wanted to share for our local Chicago listeners. The Music Box, one of our favorite venues here in the city, has announced their full wave of programming and guests for their debut year of Cinepocalypse. It is an evolution to the program design of Bruce Campbell's Horror Film Festival, and it has begun, Josh, as of the time this show will air, November 2nd through the 9th at the Music Box. It is the Midwest's largest gathering of genre films and fans. They've got premieres of many movies. They've got some secret screenings and other features and shorts and they've got a great lineup of judges for the festival this year as well including larry Cohn and joe carnahan and barbara crampton barbara crampton who i could go josh and give her her haddonfield award for best supporting actress for her performance in reanimator part of our horror movie marathon the second marathon in film spotting history back in 05 i'm sure that would cap her career for her. <laughs> Sam, meanwhile, should go to Cinepocalypse and give Jessica Harper, the star of Dario Argento Suspiria, a personal apology for <laughs> he was, crapping all over. He wasn't a fan, huh? That film. I'm oh, sure wow. he had nice things to say about Harper, but then again, maybe not because he really did not go for that movie. So we'll see if either of those things happen. We do encourage you to check it out. If you are into the horror genre, we will link to more information about Cinepocalypse in our show notes at filmspotting.net. Let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, Josh and I massacred this scene. Is that Dad's razor? Yeah. Can I say something? What? You don't have permission to take his property that belongs to all of us and use it for yourself as if it's yours. Jack agrees with that, right, Jack? Plus, Dad would have hated it. Why? That's my opinion. I know him well. That's a terrible thing to say. Well, I don't mean it to be. I just don't want you to get the feeling that you're better friends with him than we are or something weird like that. And also, you can't leave your wife just because she's pregnant. Jack agrees with that too, right, Jack? Stop including me. I was his favorite. He told me that blood all over him laying in the street right before he died. That's Adrian Brody as Peter and the one and only Owen Wilson as Francis with Jason Schwartzman's Jack in 2007's The Darjeeling Limited, written by Wes Anderson, Roman Coppola, and Jason Schwartzman, and of course directed by Anderson. That massacre was part of a show that also included a review of Noah Baumbach's The Meyerowitz Stories and our top five Baumbach characters. You know, it's funny. I don't know that we've ever talked about it, but for all your adoration of Wes Anderson, I'm the only one in the room right now who's interviewed him. You interviewed him? He was on Film Spotting. No, I interviewed him. When? Okay. Do you want to back that up? Why? I did interview him. When? I interviewed him for Rushmore. Did you? Yeah. On a bus. Him and Schwartzman. On a bus. Yeah. Right here at Navy Pier. No kidding. I don't think he likes to fly, so they were going across country on a bus. Love it. Yeah, it was good. I just talked to him in a room somewhere at a hotel. Him and Schwartzman for the Darjeeling Limited. Oh, okay. If you actually want to listen to that, we'll link to it in this show's notes over at filmspotting.net. And now... We get to some feedback. Joran Kane, McKinney, Texas. Adam, great job. Your impression of Owen Wilson's impression of Jack Nicholson was outstanding. Layered. Hmm. Let's go to the tape. Well, I don't mean it to be. I just don't want you to get the feeling that you're better friends with him than we are or something weird like that. And also, you can't leave your wife just because she's pregnant. Jack agrees with that too, right, Jack? 
I don't know. I think you might have me pegged. You know, I think you really nailed three syllables there. <laughs> three syllables. And also, that was that was Wilson. Yeah. Yeah, three I kind of had the cadence hey, there. Take it from me. That's a good batting average. <laughs> Justin Swanson, Lincoln, Nebraska. Adam, I knew you were impersonating Owen Wilson in the Darjeeling Limited from the moment you first started speaking. Way to nail it. There you go. I'd been thinking about Wes Anderson ever since seeing a preview for the Meyerowitz stories, as the preview reminded me of my all-time favorite film, The Royal Tenenbaums. Was interested to learn, though not surprised, that this director had collaborated with Anderson several times before. As of writing this email, I have not seen any of Bombach's films, but after listening to this episode, I look forward to working my way through a number of his films that you mentioned. A little less praise here for you from Ed Savoy in Harrisonburg, Virginia. (laughs) In the history of doubling down on a foolhardy errand, Adam's insistence on trying to do an Owen Wilson impersonation ranks high. That scene would be from Wes Anderson's The Darjeeling Limited, which I agree is not memorable. As you mentioned on the show, Bombeck is a not infrequent collaborator of Anderson's, and particularly in parallel with the Meyerowitz stories, there's a certain thematic preoccupation with father issues. There's also the presence of Ben Stiller here, whose role as a financial professional with daddy issues in Meyerowitz echoes his role as a financial professional with daddy issues in Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums. Indeed. Andre Cadeau, Charlottesville, Virginia. The public enemies? Yankee Doodle Dandy? Oh, right. That's Adam's impression of Owen Wilson. (laughs) Oh, you dirty rat. You two must be doing a scene from Darjeeling Limited. And how about this one? There are so many links to this. I guess the one I'll mention is, and we didn't think of this, Josh, or at least I didn't, the character speaking is Francis. Noah Bombach made Francis Ha. Francis is a great name, says Francis Francis. from Bethesda, Maryland. (laughs) Kyle Tobkin from Memphis, Tennessee said, this is my favorite Wes Anderson movie, and I will defend it to my last breath. Note, I do differentiate between favorite and best. I have two lists for all my favorite filmmakers, and they rarely line up. I know at least one of you understands. But Darjeeling, not Anderson's best by far, is easily my favorite. It's his most heartfelt, least pretentious, most laugh-out-loud funny, and one of those movies I will put on anywhere, anytime, and just coast along with it. It's as much of a feel-good movie as Anderson can do, and it is amazing. Kyle, I hear what you're saying, but you're completely wrong. About what part? Everything you said about the Darjeeling Limited. Literally everything you said is the opposite of that. Sorry, Kyle. (laughs) But, hey, Kyle, we love your website, and thank you for listening to the show. Let's reach in. To that film spotting hat, not not brimming, but pretty full this week. Josh, and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Adam Hoffer from Memphis, Tennessee. Congratulations, Adam. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. You can even go with the royal blue. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. We move on now to this week's scene, and as we were trying to decide which character we would each play, you described one of the characters as utterly bland, and so I raised my hand (laughs) as that is my middle name. But that means I have to play the kid. I don't think I've played a kid before. I don't know if you have. And you know what gives me the creeps whenever, like when Saturday Night Live, when they play kids, any stage production, an adult plays a kid. Yeah, and now it's you. I hate it. Now it's you. We can hate you. Okay, I started off. You're going to give me the action. Are you ready? And action. You owe me money. You give me five bucks or you get out. I thought you always help people in trouble. Hey, kid, this is the city. I don't help anybody but myself. But I always thought... Get lost. Wait, I know why you're not acting like yourself. 
you don't have your special helmet. See, you're wearing the baseball hat, but you're supposed to be wearing this. Take mine. Go on. Take it. Take it. You're giving this to me? Well, yeah, you're my hero. Here. Here, take the car. Thanks, Thor. You're welcome. And, and scene. scene. What what kind of helmet was it, Josh? Special helmet. Well, if you know what film we just massacred, you're supposed to email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, November 13th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. You might just win a special T-shirt. Great. Now you have to transition back to normal voice. Actually, deep radio voice. Give us a good teaser, Josh. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Adam, dressed up as Green Lantern. You wish. Our top five superhero costumes are around the corner. Stay with us. In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's life. A few thank yous here, Josh, womeninfilm.org. We talked about them last week, and they are going to be part of an annual donation we are going to make to that organization, which advocates for and advances the careers of women who are working in the film industry. The money goes to scholarships, mentoring, grants, and other essentials. And they were very nice, Josh, to acknowledge us and our contribution in a Twitter post and in a Facebook post. And I really hope that more film spotting listeners are looking in to the services that women in film provide. So again, our thanks to that group. And thanks to Aaron Bergstrom, a longtime listener of the show, who says it's been a long time coming. This is hopefully the first of many contributions on my part, as I owe you two a lot for many years of great conversations about film. Thanks, Aaron. We We also have a Silver Club donation from Amanda H. who says, Josh's sweet transvestite rendition rules. That earned us a Silver Club donation, Josh. Singing for my money. Wow. Never would have imagined. (laughs) We also got a donation, a Silver Club donation from Micah Malone. He is from, I meant to look this up. I don't suppose you Googled it, did you? Guangzhou, China? Guangdao? Guangdao? China? Guangdao. Formerly known as Micah in Cairo. That's, That's a, a lot easier to say, on. Micah. Why couldn't you just say it in Cairo? It's a lot easier to say. I previously shared some harrowing commuter stories with you guys as I often listen to your show during my treacherous commute to work in that crazy city. By the way, I ran a film club at my old school, and much of my watching list was either in the Pantheon or from current episodes. Somehow my awful bus rides was topped last summer while listening to your work. Last July, my brother, father, and I traveled through Bhutan and traversed across a wonderful country with a driver named Rinchin at the wheel. One epic drive is material for a film in itself as the roads were fraught with landslides, cranes, mountains, and chaos. My brother's exclamation at the end was simply, you're an amazing driver, Rinchin, but that was scary as shit. (laughs) However, my brother and I are avid listeners to your podcast, and I happened to download your episode on The Beguiled before the trip. I really do remember being so happy we had it while going over these mountain passes. 
film criticism can soothe tension? Who knew? I finally caught up with The Beguiled the other week and loved it. Sofia Coppola is a master. Thanks for your work, and my donation is only a small token to how much I appreciate what you guys do. Thanks. We also wanted to thank those listeners who went over to Apple Podcasts and gave us a rating or a review. We thank DMB681010, Joey Z. Brown, Gawain7, Jay Russin in LA, Fantastic 15, Damuiz, sure, Clem Torment and Fun with Barb for taking the time recently to post a, a review. A lot of numbers in those names. DMB 681010, that's Dave Matthews Band. That's what they're well, doing. you would think. That's what they're doing now. They just go on iTunes and rate and review podcasts. <laughs> that's, that's what they're doing instead of touring. Yeah. Or while they're on tour. Are they still on tour? Well, thanks, Dave. We appreciate it. It will be bold. Dramatic. Yeah. Heroic. Yeah, something classic. Like uh, Dinah Guy. Oh, he had a great look. Oh, the cape and the boots. No capes. Isn't that my decision? Do you remember Thunderhead? Tall Storm Powers. Nice man. Good with the kids. Listen. November 15th to 58th. <laughs> All was well, another day saved when his cape snagged on a missile gun. Thunderhead was not the brightest ball. Stratogale. April 23rd, 57. Cape caught in a jet turbine. Mm, you can't generalize about this. Meta Man, Express Elevator, Diner Guy, Snag on Takeoff, Splashdown, Sucked into a Vortex. No kicks! That was The Incredibles. We had to play that coming into this top five, tying in with our review of Thor, Ragnarok, superhero costumes. Will we obey? Will we avoid capes? Or will we have capes on our list, Josh? That is the question. I'm going to say, no, I don't have any capes. No capes? Honorable mention, a very important cape. I think even Edna would agree on this. Okay, well, I've got a couple of capes on my list. I want to hear how you went about setting up your list, if you had any criteria, if you had any rules. I did find, after I'd already come up with at least four of my picks, I found a list online from Screen Rant. It was from 2014, and they offered this criteria for their 25 best super villain costumes. And I suppose it's as good a time as any then to ask, did you consider villains to be heroes for the purposes of this top five? No, because you've got about 6,000 Marvel movies to go. We're going to need another top five. Oh, well, super I, villain just, costumes. I just went with costumes from superhero movies. So you've got some villains? I've got some villains. Oh, come on. Yeah, I've got a couple of villains. <sighs> Sorry. We should have planned this out you gotta, better. You got to come up with a top five down the road then. <laughs> okay. I will, I will bear that You burden. know we need these. Here were their questions. How faithful is the costume to the source material? The costume is allowed to deviate from the original design if the original concept is still present. How does it come across on screen? The costume should be visually appealing and look realistic. How well does it hold up over time? The costume needs to be worthy of staying on this list for years to come and not be subject to passing fads. And four, is it cool? Because it has to be cool, nothing will make a super villain anyway less scary than a goofy costume. So any of those apply to your picks? Yes, I did take source material into consideration. You did? Yeah. I'm shocked because neither of us are comic book guys, so to speak, and these are movie superhero costumes, so you must have done a lot of research. Well, a lot of times my first exposure to comic books are when the movies get made. It's similar to the novels I'll read for the first time for their adaptations. It's a good chance to get familiar with that material, but it wasn't strict where if they deviated in some way, it was off the list, okay? It was just one factor. I'd say definitely, is it cool? Absolutely, that's another factor. I've got one pick here that is sheer design. That's Mm -hmm. 
pretty much why I put it on the list. But the real thing I considered when putting something on this list is the maxim that costume is character, okay? And okay. this is true for every well-rounded screen character. Mm-hmm. You hope that the costume is well-considered. But I think for superheroes, it's especially true because the costumes are at the forefront. That's why we're doing this list. So I think that with most of my picks, the design nicely serves the character at hand, and then some of those other factors come into play as well. Okay, so I did have at least three of those come into play. I thought about just how it looks on screen, the visual appeal. I did think about, to an extent, the timeliness, whether or not it feels really dated or it feels like something, whether it was from a movie 20 or 30 years ago, it might be what we would see that character wear today. And yeah, coolness was a factor, certainly with at least one of my picks. I did not really think about at all how faithful it is to the source material, which might, I guess, downgrade my credibility here if I had any with some of our listeners. I think we have probably already lost some credibility, though, in the mere fact, Josh, that we're calling them costumes. You know, these superheroes aren't going trick-or-treating. What are we supposed to these say? Are, these are suits. Suits? Aren't they suits? Uh, They're not costumes. All of mine wearing suits? They're not playing dress-up. Well, they kind of are. A little. (laughs) A little. But my other question for you as we get into your number five pick is, are we going to hear from DC apologists or Marvel apologists? Is this going to inflame a civil war? Oh. Did you think about that at all? I did not take into consideration at all. I did. Which company they came from. Okay. I'm glad you got that covered. Mm. Number five, let's start with a pick that is all about the design. It's The Rocketeer. He was played by Billy Campbell in The Rocketeer. This is a movie that almost succeeds entirely on style alone. It doesn't really have that much else to recommend it, to be honest. But the style is great, and it does draw from Dana Stevens' graphic novel, which was about a 1930s pilot who discovers a futuristic jetpack. So what you have here is sort of a steampunk slash sci-fi slash art deco design. A lot of bold lines, Uh, use of metallic material, and rich leather as well. And all of this comes together in the costume of the title character, the character itself, you know, not so memorably played by Campbell. How do I look? Like a hood ornament. You do have great work from the costume designer, though, Marilyn Vance. She continues the fighter pilot aesthetic, so he's got this leather bomber jacket, but really, it's all about two things. It's about that jetpack, which is sort of a space-age retro cool. It's not overly technical or something that seems like it might come from other alien civilization. It just looks like, I guess it is very steampunk in a way. And then also, the helmet. This awesome, fantastic helmet. Looks like it's made of bronze, has these big, dark alien eyes. And then it's got this fin that projects backwards, so it suggests he's in flight even when he's just standing still. Basically, if Boba Fett had fought in World War II, he would have worn this. (laughs) I think that's pretty cool. The Rocketeer came out in 91. I honestly don't remember much else about the movie. I I remember Jennifer Connelly in period costume. Mm -hmm. But besides that, you say The Rocketeer, and instantly I see that figure, that jetpack, and that helmet. Your Boba Fett reference almost makes me want to see The Rocketeer. I don't know if you even really want to see The Rocketeer. Look at the pictures. (laughs) And yet it's your number five. (laughs) Look at the pictures. Okay. My number five, well, why don't we hear the character himself do the honors? Wait! You may be wondering why the red suit. Well, that's so bad guys can't see me bleed. This guy's got the right idea. He wore the brown pants. 
Ryan Reynolds as Wade Wilson as Deadpool there. And that's all you need to hear, Josh. He calls it a suit, the red suit that covers up the bloodstains. I looked up the background here, even though I didn't really go back through the history of Deadpool's costume changes. The Marvel Wikia says this, Deadpool wears a red and black full-body tactical suit in order to hide the cancer scars that cover his entire body. It was designed by his friend Weasel, a weapons designer and arms dealer who designed most of Deadpool's equipment. The suit houses a number of pockets containing multiple types of guns, grenades, sigh, and knives. The suit also has two holsters on his back to house his katanas. Deadpool also used to wear a teleporter on his wrist, which I don't believe is part of the outfit in the movie. You think of these superhero costumes, and for the most part, they do reflect this alter ego. It's about anonymity. It's covering up who they are in real life. And this suit is, in part, practical for Deadpool, besides the weapons. I mean, we all need places to carry our katanas, Josh. It's just part of life. But he does have to cover himself up. He is hiding himself from the world for a different reason than, say, Bruce Wayne is. It isn't about maintaining another life or shielding those he loves from danger. It's really just about preventing the world from seeing who he is or what he really looks like. And so that line between Wade and Deadpool really is pretty blurred. There's really not much distinction between the two. But the biggest reason I like this costume is because it does look cool. It's red and black. Those colors immediately appeal to me. And while there are a lot of superhero costumes, I would never in a million years want to put on. I mean, taking out the fact that neither of us are built like Ryan Reynolds and most of us aren't. The Deadpool costume is one I think it would just actually be fun to put on. And maybe one of those reasons why I feel that way, Josh, is because it's undeniably so similar to Spider-Man's costume. It looks really just like it with a different color scheme. And Spider-Man was absolutely one of my early superhero loves. And I think it makes sense in context of the movie. If anyone's seen it, you know how self-referential it is. And I know from a little bit of research that in the comic books that is brought up. It's not lost on people that they look very similar. In fact, I don't think it's lost on the two superheroes that they look alike and Peter Parker and Wade Wilson have a little bit of a rivalry, but they couldn't be more different as people under their suits. And yet they share a look and they share that same kind of similar hyper talkative approach. They rely heavily on humor. The Deadpool costume, I believe was designed by Angus Strathy and Russ Schinkel. And it's cool, Josh. That's all I can say about Deadpool's outfit. It is cool. I do like that one. And it's almost, yeah, the Spider-Man connection. It's like Spider-Man's costume grew up, Got a little curdled, a little bitter, a little cynical. Right. And and that's how the character is, and that's what it looks like, too. So before we get to our number four picks, we do have a guest voicemail here. One of the people I thought of right away who needed to help us out with this list is Chris Klemek. He's been a longtime contributor to the show, been a guest and a guest voicemailer over the years. And he's someone who I've pointed out multiple times looks like Clark Kent. He has a little Superman in him, and, well, it's really not a surprise where he went for his number one. Hello, Adam, Josh, and Sam. It's your buddy Chris Clemick checking in from Washington, D.C. You know, the third act of Zack Snyder's Man of Steel is so awful that people forget about the two-thirds of the movie that I think are really good. In the plus column for that movie is Alex McDowell's production design, and particularly James Akison's and Michael Wilkinson's costume design. I think the way that they imagine the advanced Kryptonian technology sort of a Geiger-esque tech that's, that's been grown somehow as a kind of ties into the Donner 78 Superman, which showed us a sort of a crystal-based technology, but updates it. 
and that is best expressed in Superman's costume, which is sort of a like a scaly sort of chainmail type advanced looking material. It has the design elements of the classic Superman costume, but still looks like some alien technology influenced the design. I particularly like the idea that the symbol that looks like an S to us is a insignia of a Kryptonian house, like a coat of arms or something. It ties into my favorite scene in the movie when Amy Adams as Lois Lane asks Superman what the S stands for, and he says it's not an S. On my world, it means hope. I think the movie could have used more of that, but uh, it's a great costume. It's a great scene. That's my favorite movie superhero costume. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Chris. Can always count on you to come to the defense of Man of Steel. (laughs) But I'm glad you made that pick and mentioned Michael Wilkinson because he's the designer for my number four pick, which is Rorschach, played by Jackie Earl Haley in Watchmen. This is Zack Snyder's extremely image-faithful adaptation of the 1986 graphic novel by author Alan Moore and illustrator Dave Gibbons. And one of those images that he doesn't mess with, except crucially to add movement, is the mask of Rorschach. So Rorschach is this vicious vigilante who gets his name from these ink blots that are continually changing shape on the white mask he wears. So because of this dynamic design, the movie's version requires a partnership of costuming. So here's where you have costume designer Michael Wilkinson coming into play and the visual effects. John Desjardins was visual effects supervisor on Watchmen. This is not just a green screen then that we're given. The mask itself was real fabric. It was multi-layered, so there's extra dimensions to it. And then digitally, there were these set patterns that the visual effects artists used for certain expressions and emotions. And those were drawn and pulled from Gibbon's original illustrations. So the result of all this is a constantly shifting, unnerving motion at play on Rorschach's face. And in some ways, it inverts the purpose of a mask. So instead of hiding what the character is thinking or feeling, it puts it right out there. And this is somewhat similar to Rorschach himself, how he operates as this blunt vigilante instrument, even while he's still, you know, somewhat of a mysterious character. So my number four is Rorschach. Yeah, that's a fantastic choice. So good. We might hear a little bit more about Rorschach in a moment, and it will be a moment because I don't have a lot to say about my number four. It's Batman, and it's specifically the Batman costume from The Dark Knight Rises. And if there are people out there wondering, why would it be The Dark Knight Rises and not The Dark Knight? Well, it's because they're the same costume. At least that's what I found in an interview with the costume designer, Lindy Hemming, from 2012. I don't know if that changed over time, maybe as the movie was in production, and I haven't seen either film in quite a while. But this is one of those things with these superhero movies. They're constantly altering the costumes. And while that's part of the fun, I know that the fans of these series do love to really scour all the little changes and consider what they mean and how cool or uncool they look. But I love the fact that they hit on such a good design with the Dark Knight, and they did. They found this dark black armor and really just all the color that we associate certainly with the earlier Batman from the Adam West days, the kind of fantastical nature of Batman. They made him this Dark Knight, this machine. It's armor. It has very little color. The belt, the utility belt, is really where we get just a splash of gold. The cape, at least in certain angles, isn't even really that noticeable. Again, it's really about function. It's tactical. It's really just to help him be this 
ruthless, efficient crusader. And again, I love the fact that it worked so well that they said, we really can't improve upon this. There's no reason to improve upon this. And we're going to let it continue to be something that is part of this character. If you're working alone, wear a mask. I'm not afraid to be seen standing up to these guys. The mask's not for you. It's to protect the people you care about. Count to five, then throw. Man, I could not pick one Batman costume. I wanted to put him on this list so badly because I do think it's a fantastic design. The cape, especially how it's employed throughout all the films in different ways. As you mentioned, I have a lot of affection for the Keaton classic look, you know, with still using the yellow insignia. But you're right about uh, the armor element to the Dark Knight, which fits the aesthetic of that film. Basically, I think we can all agree, just stay away from Schumacher's bat nipples. (laughs) And Clooney. And, and like, set that aside. The others all work in their own way, I think. We agree. Okay, good. My number three is Wonder Woman, Gal Gadot from this year's Wonder Woman. And this is a character who's had, shall we say, uh, a dubious history of costuming, uh, straddling that line between empowerment and exploitation. For an eye-popping example of both at the same time, check out the design in the 2009 direct-to-video animated film. This year's Wonder Woman, though, with Gadot, seemed to have pleased most people as far as the costume was concerned. There were a lot of mentions of this by listeners on Facebook and Twitter, including Sarah Welch. She's at Dodgy Boffin. She said, big fan of the new Wonder Woman costume, faithful to the look of the original, and an accurate riff on Greek armor. I'd agree. I think that this is a look that says fighting first while still retaining some of the femininity of William Marston's original character design. He had her, if you look at the cover of the first Wonder Woman comic book, she's got this flowing star-spangled skirt. So here, costume designer has already been mentioned, Lindy Hemming. She makes that more of a thick, battle-ready leather skirt. I found some good comments from another costume designer, Amanda Weaver, who wrote about Wonder Woman at WeSoNerdy.com, and she points out that the key was starting from the right place for this character in this costume. She said Lindy Hemming didn't use fetish lingerie as her starting point. She used armor, actual armor. With Wonder Woman, the starting point, the intent is everything. The reason I literally cried watching the Amazons fight is that finally somebody started at the right place. That design showed respect. The intent right from the start was to portray these women as warriors, and that, at least for me, made all the difference. Mm -hmm. I think absolutely that was a distinctive of Wonder Woman. It's why it was one of the most rewarding movies of the summer for a lot of people, including us. And that's why it gets the number three slot on my list. Yeah, an honorable mention for me. I think it does find that exact right balance. It's not as if it's not revealing. It certainly is in ways, but it also seems functional in ways that you wouldn't expect from a Wonder Woman costume. And I think for me, it's about the colors. It's kind of similar to what Chris was even saying about Man of Steel, too. Taking out the bright blue, the bright red, and bright yellow, and dulling it down just a little bit to make it feel sort of era-appropriate to World War One, I, I suppose. So I'm with you on Wonder Woman. And I'm with you on our appreciation for Rorschach, from Watchmen, my number three, Josh. And it's funny, I said that I had two villains, and I don't. I only have one 
but it's so easy to think of Rorschach as a villain. Yeah, well, Even all though those characters, right? That's kind of the point of Watchmen, but in many ways, he could be seen as the hero of the movie. He's the one we're following. He's the detective that's taking us through the story, trying to get to the bottom of the demise of the comedian, and I don't know that I have anything to add beyond what you said, but I mentioned how little distinction there was between Wade Wilson and Deadpool. There's certainly even less between Walter Kovac and Rorschach, and you touched on this. He doesn't say to that psychiatrist or whoever it is interviewing him at one point in the jail when he meets him later and he's trying to get out of the jail. He doesn't say, where's my mask? He says, where's my face? Mm. He sees that as the true version of himself, unlike, I think, many of the other heroes we might have put on our list or considered for this list. He is that trench coated detective with the inkblot mask. Very simple, but he's a superhero with no real superpowers. And if you do the Googling, it says that he just has his strong will, his peak human physical strength, and a finely honed sense of timing and precision. But what really defines him, for better and for worse, is his sense of morality, as deranged as it might be to some, and his sense of purpose. It is rigid, it is non-negotiable for him. There is good and there is evil, and he's going to do whatever he thinks he has to do to stamp evil out. Never compromise, he says at the end of the film, not even in the face of Armageddon. So we have this pretty ruthless character who nevertheless shows his emotions only through the way those ink blots change on his face. And there is, of course, great irony in that Rorschach test being applied to this mask, to his face, because the imagery of a Rorschach test, you put it up in front of you, different images, what you say about it, what it makes you think of might be completely different from what I think of. So it suggests ambiguity. The images are up for debate. They're up for discussion. But those ink blots are also black and white, which is exactly how he sees the world. And I did watch a little featurette on YouTube about the mask and how they did it. And this is a case where the designers were realizing that they probably needed to come up with some set patterns to define certain emotions and certain expressions. And then, of course, it occurred to them that we've got the graphic novel material to go back and use as a reference. And they did really hone in on those details and apply them to the Rorschach we see on screen. We have another voicemail here, this time from film spotting listener Elijah. Hey, Adam and Josh. This is Elijah in Pasadena, California. And uh, I actually do have a favorite superhero costume. Uh, It's uh, it's Hellboy. The the way that Guillermo del Toro uh, adapted the Mike McNola's Hellboy uh, looked for the screen of Ron Perlman. So Hellboy in the comics is a, uh, he's a kind of a, a scrawnier character um, than, than Ron Perlman. He has kind of a hunchback. Um, he has cloven feet um, and, and, uh, and doesn't wear boots like in the movie. So what Del Toro did um, to, to give Ron Perlman, who is a large person, a large hulking mass, uh, kind of more of that hunchback thing, he gave the coat, gave Hellboy the coat with the popped up collar to kind of mimic the kind of hunchback that Hellboy has in the comic. And then of course uh, it would be uh, cost uh, prohibitive to uh, CGIN uh, cloven hooves for Ron Perlman uh, throughout the movie. So they did the boots instead. And uh, you know, uh, Del Toro's Hellboy is not the same as the comic Hellboy. Um, he is a, he's his own personality. There's a lot of things that the comic Hellboy would not do. Um, but I feel like that uh, Del Toro's um, costuming of the character uh, kind of ties more into the kind of uh, stubbornness um, that his Hellboy has that's not really so much a part of the, the comic book. And 
kind of just makes him earthier in a way. Uh, it, it just really works. I feel like with, uh, what Del Toro is doing. So anyway, love the Hellboy costume. And, uh, if I ever have thousands of dollars to spend, uh, maybe I'll make one for myself. Uh, keep up the good work, guys. Some nice observations there from Elijah on Del Toro's Hellboy. A good film and a good character and certainly a great costume. Yeah, another good one from that film is Abe Sapien. The He's sort of like the amphibious mm-hmm. man, and I like that one too. So a lot of creativity going on in Hellboy. Of course, that's what you'd expect from a Del Toro movie. All right, my number two is Captain America, Chris Evans. And I'm going to include all the latest Marvel films for this pick rather than narrow it down to one because I like the attention. I'm sorry, that's not fair. <laughs> hey, you're including villains. Don't talk to me about rules. These are superhero movies. Super it should apply. Superhero costumes. <laughs> I like the attention that's been paid to the evolution of Captain America's costume. There's the bright pajama fabric look that he sports when the military initially employs him as part of the PR campaign. Then you get that sturdier leather design he ends up wearing on the battlefield. And lately, we have this more advanced suit that he sports in the likes of Captain America Civil War. There's a really nice moment that nods to this sense of tradition in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. He's in the museum and he comes across this display while he's wearing civilian clothes, this display of his original costume. Now, listener Tom Morris on my Facebook page, he pointed out how faithful the Captain America costume is to Jack Kirby's original designs. And I think that's been true for almost every one of these iterations, which is important here, maybe more so than with other characters, because you can sense the history, you can sense the tradition, which makes sense for a character who's at once both honoring patriotism Mm -hmm. and then subverting it a lot of times in these films as well. Yeah. So Captain America is another honorable mention for me. It's a costume and a character. I've said this before when we've talked about some of these movies that I never appreciated growing up. I think the movies have really made me appreciate Captain America. I never as a kid, for some reason, responded to the corniness I guess, of the Captain America costume with the stars and stripes and and that flag element to it, even as my other favorite superheroes like Spider-Man all wore that bright blue and red. It's there, too, but I never did respond to Captain America. And I like the one from The Winter Soldier where it's more that navy and it's just got the star and it's darker, but it seems kind of like the Dark Knight costume even, just a little sleeker and more functional. The throwback version they kind of do actually in Civil War, I really like. I think for me, the one I consider, the one I have as an honorable mention is the one from the first Avenger, where Mm -hmm. it feels like the old school original Captain America, but also feels like World War II, something that superhero actually would have worn out fighting Nazis. It's kind of baggy on him and feels like what a soldier at that time might have actually worn. Well, and there's a great buildup in that film, too, until that costume appears, right? You're kind of expecting it in an origin story. That's Mm -hmm. one of the benefits of an origin story. When it shows up, yeah, they really pull it off. Okay. My number two, here is my villain entry in my superhero costumes. You're going to like it, though. You're going to like the choice, Josh, I think. We were just talking about Rorschach and everything being in his world black and white. Well, how about Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman? All right. From the Tim Burton That's the one I almost put on. I had to go with it. It's so striking. And this is one, I think, that fits the criteria that you set up a little bit, Josh, in terms of being immediately identifiable to the character. It really is what you think of when you think about the character Catwoman. What I do anyway, I think about the suit. And I'll admit, as I was thinking about why that might be, there could be a sort of sexist 
or sexual angle to it as a straight man who finds Michelle Pfeiffer very attractive at that time, seeing her in that unbelievably tight rubber suit. And she really is being very sexually suggestive in all of her physicality. That's something that I probably responded to a little bit when I was 14 years old. And I still do now. Well, sure. But that's here's the difference. I think at least that is part of her character, right? Yes. If, if there's completely. a fetish going on, it's her fetish first. Yes. I absolutely agree with you there. And I also think it could be that she's another one who doesn't really have any superpowers. So the suit, almost like Iron Man's suit, it's what makes her Catwoman. I mean, it's there in her personality, absolutely. But I think that you really watch her come to life. And we see her transform into Catwoman in the film. Tim Burton actually shows her after she falls to the ground and comes back to life and goes home. She hand sews that outfit. And that's what I love about it is it's handmade by her. And it actually looks like it. So Mm -hmm. she designed this during this psychotic kind of spree during this breakdown after she comes back to life. And you can't really tell if it's an old dress or a type of raincoat or something, but she takes this black rubber and she stitches it herself. And when you look at it, that tight, tight black rubber and the sheen it has and the white stitching, those white stitches actually remind me of claw marks. It's like she's been clawed and the stitching's coming through. It also reminds me a little bit of a cat's stripes that you might see on a black and white cat. And it's more than anything just deranged looking. It's chaotic. It reflects her psyche, her frame of mind that we see come to life in that moment and carry on through the rest of the film. There is also to that outfit, undeniably, and I'm not the person to speak to this, but there's a sexual domination component to it. You mentioned fetish lingerie. You can't look at Catwoman in that tight rubber outfit with the whip and the power that she wields that Selena Kyle, the person before she made that transformation, simply didn't have. Now, Pfeiffer also just brings to that costume and that character an amazing physicality, the way she stands, these kind of odd angles. She's kind of up on her toes all the time like a cat might be. And there's the slinkiness, actually, watching some scenes today, there's a slinkiness to her Catwoman of a Fosse performer who just hasn't found the right music to dance to. And maybe it's a cheat, I honestly can tell you I didn't think of it as a cheat when I thought of it. I thought it was fair game, and it was too good to pass up. You're the second man who killed me this week, but I've got seven lives left. I tried to save you. Mm, It seems like every woman you try to save ends up dead (laughs) or deeply resentful. Maybe you should retire. Yeah, and, you know, there is also that question in Batman Returns whether she is pure villain or in some ways she's a heroine, right? So, yeah, fair pick. I'll let you have it. It was probably going to be on my list of top five super villains (laughs) that we would eventually get to. I still claim that I can use it then. My number one. All right. This earns the top spot for a very simple reason. As a kid. This was the superhero I always wanted to be. This was the costume I always wanted to wear. These were the underoos that I owned. Indiana Jones. (laughs) Spider-Man. Were there Indiana Jones underoos? No. Man, they missed an opportunity there. Maybe so. All right, Spider-Man. Now, I think even as a kid, I did have good reasons for Spider-Man and this preference. A lot of it has to do with the, the sleekness and the simplicity to it and maybe even the innocence you know the the coloring and that also key to the spider-man costume here's something you've brought up is this idea of anonymity 
And here's where Deadpool does echo Spider-Man. There is something about it being a completely sealed bodysuit that to me always seemed transformative. It was different than just covering your face or wearing a special coat or hiding behind a cape. This is, you know, putting this on made you someone or something entirely new and special. Every inch of you is covered. There's always been a nice consistency, too, to the Spider-Man costumes, especially in the movies. They pretty much all stay fairly close to Steve Ditko's original design, the red and the blue, webbing lines involving that somehow, the big eyes. So which one is my favorite? Well, I do have a soft spot for the human spider, Tobey Maguire's baggy, ski-mask-wearing doofus, Mm -hmm. the look he sports in the wrestling ring in 2002 Spider-Man. But if I did have to choose just one based on the costume alone, not the movie— I'm going to go with Spider-Man 3, and I know a lot of people don't like Spider-Man 3, but look at that costume. It's got, they raised the webbing a little bit, so it has a tactile, three-dimensional feel. I like that the Spider-Man insignia is a little bit bigger there in the middle, and we've mentioned a few times now the muting of the Mm -hmm. red and blue so that it's still in that tradition, but not quite as primary of colors. And then they do something interesting with the eyes here, too. They narrow them a little bit. And that gives just a hint more personality, a suspiciousness on the part of Spider-Man, which maybe fits where the character from that series Mm -hmm. is at this point. I do want to also mention quickly Spider-Man Homecoming, since it's the most recent. And I really like the thematic importance that they give to the costumes in that movie, where Peter Parker gets his high-tech suit taken away by Tony Stark. Uh, But for the best costume itself, I'm going to go with Tobey Maguire in Spider-Man 3. So I did reach out to our friend Matt Singer from our sister show, Film Spotting SVU. Huge, huge comic book geek and a huge, huge Spider-Man fan. And I asked him, what would your number one be? And you're going to love this, Josh. He did mention right away, if the Rocketeer counts, the Rocketeer. But then he said, maybe I'm biased because I love Spider-Man, but I've always thought the Raimi Spider-Man costume was absolutely beautiful and the best translation of a comic book costume into a movie to that date. And it's still up there. Nice. And it's hard to argue with Spider-Man for me. An honorable mention had to be considering I do have this documented somewhere that I was interviewed from my mother's company newsletter when I was like five years old. And it asked me <laughs> what I was going to be when I grew up. And I said, Spider-Man. Fantastic. And I'm There's obviously still time, a Adam. failure. Still time. A complete failure. A quick note before we get to my number one. I failed to mention the designers of Batman Returns, the costumes for Catwoman, Bob Ringwood, and Mary Eve Vote. For my number one superhero costume, Josh, I had to call in a heavy hitter. Hello, Film Spotting listeners. This is Tom King. I'm the writer of DC Comics' Batman and Marvel Comics' The Vision. But more importantly, I'm a Film Spotting listener since 2007. My first episode was The Black Dahlia, and you all hated it. You have kindly asked me to come on the show and pick my best superhero movie costume of all time, with an emphasis on movie. And this is a tough one for me. There's a lot to pick from. But I decided the best way in film spotting tradition was to give myself a rule. And the rule I gave myself was when I close my eyes and think of a superhero, is there a costume where I think of the movies in front of the comics being the big nerd that I am, where my brain automatically goes to panels and pages? And when I'm honest with myself, there's only one costume that does that, and that is the Superman costume Christopher Reeves wore in Superman the movie from 1978, where the costume designer was Yvonne Blake. That costume to me is the most iconic in movie history uh, for superheroes. 
and that it sort of embodies what that hero is simply and perfectly and elegantly. I mean, it's grounded, it's real somehow, even though it's fantastical and shouldn't work at all. It seems like something that could exist every day that you could reach out and touch it. And because of that, when he performs sort of his superhero deeds, you believe that those exist and the stakes, perfect film spotting word, seem real. And also I like how Reeves wears the costume, how he moves with it. He was a pilot and he sort of reinvented flying like a pilot flies, sort of tilting as he went along. I mean, there's just something perfectly timeless about that. And then you add to it, to do a little cheat, the Clark Kent costume that goes along with it actually makes a transformation which is absurd and should never work, work. You believe that people would actually think, hey, that's Clark and that's Superman and those aren't the same people. And that's a little miracle of costume design. So that's my pick, guys. Thank you so much for all the great episodes and um, keep going. Thank you so much, Tom, for the kind words and for that great, great pick. Christopher Reeve's costume as Superman in Superman the movie. And I love his rule because it does bring a perspective that we can't bring to this list. He closes his eyes and he thinks of the movie ahead of the comic because they're just so ingrained in his head. And I do want to give Tom a plug. I've done this on the show before, but the vision, I have not been able to branch out yet and read some of his other stuff, but his recent vision series is remarkable. You can get it on Amazon. We'll link to it in our show notes or just Google it. And I'm sure you can find it at your local comic book store or bookstore. But that vision series that follows that character as he tries to assimilate into the Washington suburbs and have a family is remarkable, remarkable stuff. Can't recommend it highly enough. I'm with Tom completely though on this costume, Josh, because It's not only a miracle of costuming, as Tom noted, but it is a miracle of performance, too. Maybe something we've always taken for granted a little bit with Christopher Reeve, and my eyes were really open to it, actually, just a few weeks ago. I don't remember why this was shared or who shared it. I'm sure others saw it as well, though. It was something put out on Twitter by someone I follow, and they showed how in just one or two scenes how Christopher Reeve, just with a little flip of his posture— was able to completely embody Clark Kent and then change and become Superman. And it really was not just the outfit and the glasses, but in the way he physically portrayed those two characters. The costume is so great, certainly in part because of Reeve and the elegance of it. You heard Tom use that word. There's a grace to it. It's majestic in its simplicity, just as Superman is majestic in a way in his simplicity. He's there to do good, to help people, and that's all he's committed to. You... Contrast that costume, though, Josh, with something like my Deadpool choice, where I said I'd actually kind of have fun dressing up as Deadpool. I would never, ever, under any circumstance, (laughs) put on that red underwear and the tights. Though I did it as a kid, and I'll link to this picture in our show notes. There is a shot of me in my Superman costume. I don't know that you see me in the full-blown underoos, though I think they were on, but I've got me as Superman at about age six or seven. Yeah, good, good. I, I would say the cutoff is what, maybe 10, 11? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not quite there dress yet. up as Superman? I'm not quite there yet, but I do think this costume defies a mere mortal to put it on, which is what makes it so perfect for Superman. I think what makes it the ultimate superhero costume. Um, uh, what's your background? Uh, where do you hail from? Well, it's, uh... Kind of hard to explain, actually. See, I'm from, um, well, pretty far away. Another galaxy, as a matter of fact. I come from a planet called Krypton. Huh? Krypton. 
Oh, Krypton. With a C-R-I? Uh, no, no actu actually, it's Krypton with a K-R-Y, P-T. Now, for those of you keeping score, I said that I paid attention to the Marvel-DC battle. And what did I end up doing? One Marvel and then four straight DC picks. So I think really? I'm in trouble. Oh, man. I think I'm going to be in some trouble with some of our listeners. I hope you will forgive me. Those are our top five superhero and one villain costumes. Any honorable mentions that you haven't gotten to yet, Josh? You know, I think most of yours I would also include as honorable mentions. So let's see here. What haven't we brought up? Oh, my cape, my almost cape pick. Okay. Doctor Strange. I mean, that's... Which I almost watched for this list because yeah. I still haven't caught up with it. It's wonderful because it's almost a character in that film. And in a sense, I, I almost set it aside for that reason as well. It's, it's more than a costume, really. Hmm. Um, we talked about this a little bit at home, just wanted to feel out the home crowd. So here are a couple picks from that. Adeline went with Iron Man, though I kind of feel like that's almost too much of a weapon. But okay, Iron Man, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Beatrix went with The Incredibles. She just said she loved how mm -hmm. they molded each suit to each family member's powers. Debbie, of course, went with Thor. I tried to explain biceps. <laughs> she went with Chris are, Hemsworth. Biceps are not yeah. costume, but whatever. Okay. What about abs? I guess those two. <laughs> you did mention all of my honorable mentions, except I'll give some more love to another Batman character, the Joker, the Christopher Nolan, Heath Ledger Joker we keep using that word, sort of muted colors, making him feel still like the Joker. We know from even the Adam West series and from the other Burton movies to an extent, but also making him feel like someone we would actually believe walking around that version of Gotham City. That makeup design, yep. too, is more than half of the effectiveness of that character. Now, I did like the creativity or lack thereof of our buddy, our top five expert, Jeff Milo, who said that he was initially stumped and then it hit me. Hulk. No frills, no shirt, no shoes, <laughs> full service smash. Everyone else has utility belts and golden lassos and cosmic rings and vibranium shields or whatever bells and whistles. Just tear through the shirt, keep your purple cutoff shorts and get into the fray with your bare green hands. But wait, Hulk was always more than a bit allegorical. The Jekyll and Hyde, perhaps Bruce Banner is the real costume. And that's a lot of psychological baggage to chew on about identity and social ostracizing and, you know, misconceptions about gamma rays and whatnot. Basically, Jeff says he speaks to the primal beast inside all of us. So wouldn't have thought of the ultra simplicity of Hulk, but why not? So that's another great touch in Thor Ragnarok. We didn't really, we didn't spend much time on Hulk. No. But I, I like when he transforms back to Banner. And this is where they're almost undercutting and just making a full joke of it. Isn't he wearing like some sort of really ill-fitting robe yes. or a big shirt? Yeah, well, I and felt like it was the pants or something just like hanging <laughs> off of him, almost like a, so a shower curtain. It's so shoddy. <laughs> it is. But really funny. Yeah. That is our show at filmspotting.net. You can find over 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives while you're there. Please vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're presenting an all-star ensemble deathmatch. The cast of Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri versus the cast of Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express. Both of those films are opening next weekend here in Chicago. All right, if you haven't already checked out the next picture show or film spotting SVU, why not? They're both part of the film spotting family of podcasts and our regular listens in my podcast feed. All right, if you're over at filmspotting.net, that's where you can find the all new film spotting merch. 
We've got all new colors up there for you to choose from. More information is at filmspotting.net slash shop. Out in wide release this weekend, Bad Mom's Christmas, Unseen by Us, and Thor Ragnarok. Seen by us, reviewed by us earlier in the show. Sounds like, Josh, you are giving Thor a mild recommendation or a legitimate recommendation. Uh, I went on my site three out of four stars, whatever that's worth. I'm somewhere in the two and a half to three range. Come on, come on over. You had fun. You giggled. Imagine it not in 3D. I didn't have as much fun as I hoped I would. But maybe it it was the head cold, and I saw it in 3D. So there you go. See Thor Ragnarok in 2D. Out in limited release, Human Flow. Do you want to see this film? Artist Ai Weiwei's documentary about the global refugee crisis, LBJ, Rob Reiner-directed biopic with the great Woody Harrelson in the title role. Novitiate. In the early 1960s, during the Vatican II era, a young woman training to become a nun struggles with issues of faith sexuality and the changing church melissa leo and that one and finally princess sid this comes from friend of the show stephen Cohn, a film of his that is getting a lot of acclaim we can't wait to see it played here i believe at the chicago film festival and stephen's a great local talent we hope many of you get a chance to see princess sid we also did want to plug most beautiful island longtime friend and listener of the show josh youngerman is part of that ensemble it just got released this weekend in select cities and is available on vod november 9th won the grand jury prize at south by southwest and the writer director star producer of the movie is anna asenzio the film was shot on super 16 millimeters so josh youngerman says josh larson will hate it unfair maybe so david ehrlich wrote a very positive review of the film and we will link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net next week our final lineup here for the show is still a little bit up in the air but we are expecting to get to todd haynes wonderstruck and maybe agnes varda's new one faces places film spotting is produced by golden joe Dassault and sam van hogren without sam and golden joe this show wouldn't go Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you liked what you heard, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That will help us reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.